The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen. Would you remain standing as we read Daniel 9, verses 24 through 27. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the world to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of the anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks Then, for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again, with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty-two weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off, and shall have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week he shall put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. Until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Our most gracious Heavenly Father, what we need more than anything else is to see your glory in the face of your Son, Jesus Christ. What we need more than anything else is assurance that he is on his throne, that he reigns today. What we need more than anything else is to know that he is in absolute control of all things in this world, to know that we are safe and secure in his hand, to know that he will cause us to endure until the very end. Father, as we approach your word this morning, I pray that you open our eyes to see that reality. I pray that you help us to sift through all the traditions, all the opinions, all the previous thoughts, to have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe your word as you have delivered it. Father, we love you. We trust you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we return this morning to our study of an important and incredibly difficult portion of Scripture. This passage has come to be called the Olivet Discourse. So I need you to know that we're not in the middle of a series of teaching on the end times. We're doing what we've always done. We're teaching verse by verse through the book of Mark. But it seems appropriate to me whenever we come to a difficult passage of Scripture, particularly one where I know that I'm going to land somewhere very different than many of you, it seems right that we slow down. 
I'll feel a little bit like I'm back in math class where the teacher says, don't just write down an answer. Show me your work. Show me how you got here. So that's my intention for us. I pray that because we're not moving through this 13th chapter of Mark with the same cadence that we have everything that came before, I pray that it hadn't been a source of frustration for you. Pray that it doesn't cause you to become anxious. I want you to know that there's great purpose in this. And so go ahead and just get comfortable. Get comfortable with the reality that we're going to circle back and pick up some of what we talked about next week. We're not going to finish all of this morning's text. But I need you to know that we're not in a race to solve a puzzle. We are standing in awe of a breathtaking portrait. And the longer we allow ourselves to linger here, the deeper our admiration will grow. So don't get in a rush. Don't worry about our pace. Just sit under the reading of God's word and the power of his spirit and allow it to transform you. Allow you to be truly awed at Jesus Christ as he's revealed in this word. So I hate to do it, but I gotta ask you to stand right back to your feet. We're gonna return to the text. We go to Mark chapter 13. We begin in chapter, or excuse me, verse 14. We'll read to 23. This is the word of God. But will you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be? Let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, and for those who are nursing infants on those days, pray that it might not be in the winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now, and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard, I have told you all these things beforehand. All God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Father God, make this book live to us, and it show us yourself. Show us ourself. Show us our Savior, your Son, Jesus Christ. Make this book live to us. For it's in your Son's precious name we pray. Amen. So as I told you last week, many Christians, I think it's safe to say that many of you, you believe that what Jesus is teaching about here in Mark 13, Matthew 24, and Luke 21 are things that are yet to come. Things that have not happened even today. Specifically, the return of Jesus Christ and the end of the world. Now, for those of you that are in this particular camp, those texts that we've just read, the words that we just read, might serve as a bit of a litmus test. You hear the words that that David read earlier, and immediately you hear about Daniel and the 70 weeks, and you hear about the abomination of desolation, and immediately your, your radar goes off, and you go, the Antichrist. He's talking about the Antichrist. And then almost subconsciously, you begin to work through the series of events that you believe are coming. You know that Sometime previous to Jesus' return, there's going to be a seven-year tribulation, and that during this time of tribulation, there's going to be a a man of incomparable evil and and deceit, that he's going to come in, he's going to present himself as a man of peace, that he's going to make a treaty with the people of God, with Israel, and that he's going to then allow those people to reinstitute temple sacrifice. They're going to rebuild the temple. They're going to come back and offer sacrificial worship to God there, that sometime during that treaty, this man's going to reveal himself for who he is that he's going to come and attack the people, that he's going to demand that they worship him rather than God. He's going to persecute them. Sometime 
from that point all the way up until the end of that seven years, at which point Jesus Christ will return. He will um, establish his thousand-year earthly reign, a kingdom of peace and righteousness throughout all the world. For many of you, that's exactly what you hear when you heard the words that David read and when you heard the words that I just read to you. So if this is you, know that you are in very good company. There have been many good and faithful and saintly men who have taught exactly that. My aim this morning is not to change your mind. My aim this morning is certainly not to pick a fight with you. If there has ever been a passage of scripture that I've held very lightly with open hands, there has ever been a passage of scripture that I refuse to fight with anybody about, it is this. However, as I hope you've come to know by now, there's a whole nother way to read this text. A way that I believe allows for the most straightforward of interpretations. A way that I believe allows us to cut out some of the mental and hermeneutic gymnastics that are necessary to hold this other way of reading this text. A way that I suggest to you allows what Jesus says in this passage to harmonize most greatly with all the rest of God's word. A way that I have found in my own life, once I see it, there's a lot of dots that start to make a whole lot of sense that have previously been disjointed in my mind. So again, as I told you last week, what I believe Jesus is talking about here in Mark chapter 13, all the way up through verse 32 are things that have already happened, things that happened within the lifetime of the apostles. I believe that when Jesus says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place, I believe that he literally meant a generation of 40 years. I believe that his primary focus up to verse 32 in Mark 13 is on the destruction of the temple that came in the year 70 A.D. And so I, we, we see the lead up to this, and I believe that it, it starts to unveil for us. We, we think about Jesus lamenting as he left Jerusalem. He talked about the fact that the place would be left desolate. We think about the fact that he prophesied that not one stone would be left upon another. And then at that point, his apostles asked him, when? Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to be accomplished? Because these men could not conceive of a world in which this temple that seemed to be indestructible, this place where God had welcomed his people and the nations to come and worship him. Because they could not conceive of a world in which this happened, they thought that surely whenever the temple was destroyed, that meant that Jesus was returning. And so they went on to ask him, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? They saw the destruction of the temple and the return of Jesus Christ as coming in a singular moment at the very same time. But again, I tell you, what I see Jesus speaking about here in Mark chapter 13 is primarily the destruction of the temple. And it is my prayer that as you come to see this, as you come to see this picture that I believe Jesus is painting for us in Scripture, you will see just how significant that event really is. That as you come to see that Jesus Christ wasn't pointing at something still yet to come. He wasn't pointing some 2,000 or 3,000 or 10,000 years down the road. That what he was talking about, even though it happened within the year 70 AD, it still has incredible relevance for us standing here in the 21st century. I pray that what you see is that this isn't just a prophecy about a building. This isn't just about the destruction of a temple. This isn't about the end to a sacrificial system. This isn't just about the rejection of these apostate religious leaders. I will propose to you in the weeks to come that the desolation of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, it was an outward physical sign that Jesus Christ reigns from his throne today. That Jesus Christ sits on his throne as King of kings and Lord of lords. That the Son of Man really has been given all authority and all power and all dominion. An everlasting kingdom which will never waste away. I propose to you that we can stand here today with utter confidence that Jesus sits upon his throne in part because of what he's shown us in the destruction of the temple. You see, I'm afraid that 
for so many people, they, they come to this story of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and they treat it almost as if God was giving up on a failed experiment. As if God's plan was that he was going to save his people through the law of Moses, through the sacrificing of bulls, through the ministry of earthly priests. And they just made such a hash of it that God had to send his son. And send his son to clean up the mess and start something altogether new. But church, you must know that from the very beginning of time, Jesus was, Jesus is the only way of salvation. That Jesus Christ is and always has been plan A for the salvation of the world, and there is no plan B. All of creation has always been moving towards this point. And that plan of salvation was always intended to extend through the Jews out into the entire world, to all the nations, that yes, that gospel must come first to the Jewish people. And what we see there, the core, the nucleus of this early church was going to be those remnant Jews who were held in faith by the hand of God. And yet the vast majority of them would not receive this. They were so caught up in the shadows, in the pictures, in the traditions, that they would reject the gospel that Jesus Christ taught. That was what Paul was lamenting and explaining through the 9th and 10th and 11th chapters of his epistle to the Romans. He was talking about the fact that this partial hardening had come upon the Jews, but that because of their transgression, the purpose of that transgression was that salvation would go out to the Gentiles. It is that salvation went out to the Gentiles that the Jewish people would then find a jealousy aroused within them, and that through that, they themselves would be saved. This was always God's plan. That's why Paul is able to say, it is not as though the word of God has failed. God's plan for all time was that the son of God would become the son of man. That the son of man would crush the head of the serpent. That he would then ascend to his father's right hand where he would reign on high. That he would make clear to the world that access to the kingdom of God does not come through nationality, not come through bloodlines, does not come through family ties, it comes through submission to Jesus Christ, the king of the universe. Whether you are Jew, whether you are Gentile, whether you are Hebrew, whether you are Greek, whether you are free, whether you are a slave, whether you are a man, whether you are a woman, that access always comes through King Jesus. That was always God's plan. And when you you come to see this, what you recognize is that the church isn't a parenthesis in God's redemptive plan, nor has the church replaced the nation of Israel. That this was always God's plan, the true church, believing Jews, believing Gentiles, coming together in one new people. That his plan was always that in this new people, these people called the church, he would extend salvation to the ends of the earth. This was a great mystery that Paul talks about all throughout his letters. And that what we see in the destruction of the temple in the year 70 AD is evidence that everything was going exactly as God had planned. Dear friends, the destruction of the temple was not a last-second audible. So, it does not distract or detract from the horror of it all. We remember a scene, particular scene yet to come as Jesus is marching towards the cross and there's a great crowd there and we're told that the women are mourning and they're, they're just sobbing over what's coming. Jesus turns to these women and says, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. God is not delight in the destruction of the wicked. But again I say, salvation was never meant to come through an earthly temple. Salvation was never meant to stay with the people of Israel. The plan was always, and it's shown in the destruction of the temple, it's a signal to us that the plan was always Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, our King, reigning from heaven, 
and the assurance that his people, as we come to him in faith, that we too will be received. And that as he reigns from heaven, he will use us, these new people brought together in one man, Jesus Christ, he will use us to get this gospel to the ends of the earth. We see all that assurance wrapped up in this event that happened 2,000 years ago. I pray that you come to see this as we walk through here. So we spent our time together last week talking about the signs of the times. Jesus was talking about the consequences of the fall. These things that are sure to happen from the sin of Adam all the way through the very last days when Jesus comes. Wars and rumors of wars, earthquakes and famines, uh, hurricanes, airborne viruses, all of these things that Jesus' disciples then and Jesus' disciples today were going to have to deal with. And what he was saying to them and what he's saying to us is, keep your head, don't freak out. These things are not signs that the world's about to end. They're not even signs that the temple is about to end. These are consequences and reminders of the fall of man. That with the fall of Adam, with the sin of Adam, all the rest of the cosmos was thrown into this kind of chaos and disarray. That we see the evidence of this. Now he did tell us to be on guard. He said, be on guard who you listen to. Beware who you follow. Be careful that you are not led astray. Take great care and have great concern who you allow to be called pastor and teacher. But when the world seems to be all out of control, when you see all this chaos and all this trouble and all this tribulation, you must keep your head. These are but the beginnings of the birth pains. And then when the world drags you in before powerful people and powerful places, you must know that this too is part of his plan. This is his plan that his name could be confessed, that his gospel could be shared, that we could display his glory. As God's people are dragged in before powerful people and, be, and being forced to give an account for the hope that is in them. The reason that they won't let loose of this gospel. That God is glorified as we show them, we don't care what you bring against us. You can't drive us to fear. Some of them are beaten and accused. Many of them were killed. He says yet again, you must keep your head. All of these things were things that happened within the lifetime of the apostles. They happen in parts of the world today. And sooner, I believe rather than later, they will come to Crosby, Texas. Now you must know that most people are going to reject this good news. Even in the middle of this, even as we glorify God, even as we confess this gospel, most people are not only going to reject the gospel of salvation, they're going to hate us for it. That's what Jesus said in verse 12. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated. Not just the apostles, but you too. If you preach the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Now if the world applauds you, if the world loves you, I would argue you're not preaching the true gospel. The world can't receive the true gospel. You see, the world, they look around them, and they see all this chaos and all this tribulation. They see all the things that Jesus has prophesied were going to come. The murder, the wars, the greed, the lies, the natural disasters, the illness, the lack of resources. And they immediately say to themselves, we can fix this. The world is a bunch of Bob the Builders. We can fix this. So they institute social programs, schools of psychology, political programs. They put all of these things in place, believing that they can fix the world. But as followers of Christ, as those that actually believe the things that he says, we know that things are going to continue as they are, perhaps get worse until he returns. Now, sure, there's going to be countries, there's going to be times in our history where there's relative peace, where things seem to be turning our direction, but you must know that this utopia that the world promises, they will never deliver it. Number one, because they don't know what the real problem is. Number two, even if they did know what the problem is, they weren't going to be able to fix it. Now, you see, they will, they will hate us then when we come to them and we tell them. 
We're watching as you build these towers of Babel. We're watching as you scratch and you claw and you fight to try to fix what you believe the problem is going to be. And yet we come to them and we tell them, this isn't the answer. I know that you mean well. Yes, things are a mess. Things are really, really bad, but you don't have the answer. You're just covering yourself in fig leaves. You're just trying to cover up the problem. You're never going to get there. You don't have the ability to fix this thing in yourself because the problem isn't out there. The problem is in you. The problem is in me. The problem is our hearts. And we can't change our hearts. But the one who can has come. He has come and he has proven he has all power and all authority and all ability to completely change lives, to completely turn the hearts of men like this. He's done everything that needs to be done and he's coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to deal with all these things that so harass us. He's going to deal with all these things that we all seem to agree are bad. But for today, if you would just stop trying to fix them yourself and submit to him. Stop trying to fix them yourself and trust in him. He will save you. You will find peace. You will find joy. You will find comfort in the middle of all the rest of this stuff. But if you don't, when he comes back, he will destroy you. This peaceful kingdom that you long for, this peaceful kingdom that you're trying to build by your own hand, you will have no place in it and you'll be thrown into utter darkness if you do not submit to Jesus Christ as king today. That's a, world, a word that the world cannot receive. Now, if you come to them and you tell them merely that Jesus loves you, won't you just choose him? Won't you just accept him? Jesus Christ is knocking. He's scratching at your heart's door like a little puppy caught out in the rain. Wouldn't you just open the door and let him in? He wants to join you in your efforts. You share that kind of gospel and they will love you. You share that kind of gospel and you'll find yourself standing in churches that are celebrating They will celebrate conversions by the hundreds, by the thousands perhaps. And yet what you'll look up and find is nobody's actually converted. There's been no supernatural work of God. No hearts have actually been turned. No one's actually following after Jesus Christ. And there's no real joy and no real peace and no real comfort found in that. It's just a bunch of platitudes. It's just a bunch of Jesus words that make people feel good while they stay right where they are and there's no change whatsoever. And deep down, we all know that's a lie. You see, it's like a lie that we all know, but nobody wants to say it first. We all sit around and we know this can't be true. This can't be true because it doesn't have any relevance to my life. This can't be true because it really doesn't match up with the Bible. This can't be true because it brings me no comfort in the middle of the night when really hard times come. But a preacher said it, so it must be true, so we hold on to it. But dear friends, we must preach the true gospel, that Jesus Christ is king, that he reigns on his throne today, that he extends an offer of peace to you here and now. That this isn't a call to invite Jesus Christ to join you in your life. That this is a call to fall down, to bow to your knees under the irresistible weight of the majesty, the glory. The majesty, the glory, the weight of Jesus Christ driving you to your knees in submission. That that's the true gospel. That when you submit, you will be saved. When you bend your knee and you bow your head, you will be saved. And that only there will you find true and lasting joy, unending pleasures, but the world can't receive a thing like this because it requires a transformed heart. The world cannot give up on their own plans. They can't give up on their own purposes. They can't give up on the world that they're trying to build. It takes the supernatural work of God. 
And so just as Jesus has promised, whenever we preach that gospel, we will be hated, we will be rejected by brothers, by sisters, by family members. We'll find many Christian churches, we'll find many within this church that call us aggressive and close-minded and hard. You'll find many people that have a visceral response to a gospel like this, they reject it and they're afraid of it. You ask them, why won't you hear this gospel? Why are you so afraid of this gospel? I don't know, somebody told me I was supposed to be afraid of you. Somebody told me I didn't want to sit under teaching like that. Somebody told me that that was hard and that was harsh and that was mean, that that made God into a monster. Say, yes, but what's, what's terrifying about this? What's terrifying about rec- recognizing the fact that Jesus Christ truly reigns, that God truly is sovereign over his universe? I don't know, but I've told I don't want to hear it. That's why you must know that the true gospel is a thing which divides mother from child, brother from brother, husband from wife men and women within the very same church, this true gospel will divide. But Jesus says, verse 13, you'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Do you know what I read there? I may be wrong. I'm I'm probably wrong, but I, I used to only read within this that if I endure to the end, I will be saved, and we know that it's Jesus Christ that holds me, that, that he is not going to lose me, that because my salvation was never mine to capture in the first place, that I'm safe in the hands of Jesus Christ, and that this is much of what Jesus focuses on in John chapter 10. It is, that it is Jesus that will cause me to endure. It's the hand of God that will hold on to me and that will carry me on to the very end, and that if I fall away, I was never his. If I don't endure to the end, I was never his, because, again, Jesus doesn't lose. But if I fall away, I was just some man that was wandering along with the crowd but never really knew I was there, never really knew what God was doing. And many will fall away. That's what Jesus says. There will be great apostasy. The closer we get to the end, many more will grow cold and they will wander away. So much so that he says in Luke's gospel that when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith anywhere on the earth? But I think the very fact that we are told that we must endure tells us something. I don't have to tell you to endure a nice steak dinner with your wife and your kids. I don't have to tell you to endure a nice vacation at the beach. I have to tell you to endure pain to endure suffering, to endure accusation, to endure loss, to endure hatred. What Jesus is saying is this thing won't be easy. Not just for the apostles, for us, it's going to be hard. But these are ordinary signs of the times. These are things which do not go away. Don't hold your breath waiting for something to happen and to change this until the coming of Jesus Christ. In this lifetime, you're going to have to endure. And so if you find yourself floating through this life like a lazy river, everything's just coming up roses, you're not enduring. Now, I'm not talking about going out and looking for pain and suffering, but to follow after Jesus Christ, it's going to come. I'm afraid that for so many of us, we hear this suffering, this this pain and this, this torment that comes in this lifetime, and we always associate it just strictly with men coming and saying, deny Jesus or I'll throw you in jail. Deny Jesus or you're gonna die. Deny Jesus or I'm gonna take away your kids. But for most of us living in 21st century America, it's gonna look like a fork in the road. You come in the fork in the road and you say, I know that Jesus is telling me to go here, but I see what's down that path and it's gonna be hard. It's going to be troubling. It's going to be challenging. And I see this path and it looks a whole lot easier. And then you come to that point and you say, no, I committed that I was going to follow Jesus Christ no matter what, that he would be Lord. That I submitted, that I gave away everything in order to follow him and so I go his way. That's the picture in 21st century America. Now, the day is coming when they will line us up against a wall and say, denounce Jesus or die. Maybe not in our lifetime. Maybe it's going to be in our children's. But for most of us, we don't think that, well, I don't suffer anything for Jesus Christ. 
There's no calls to suffer like this. Dear friends, every day you've got that opportunity. Will I follow Jesus? It will cost me everything. Listen to the words of Herman Bavink. He says this, like its master, the pilgrim church can expect a cross of persecution and suffering. The New Testament does not recommend virtues that lead believers to conquer the world, but rather calls us to patiently endure its enmity. The most we can look for is that under kings and all who are in high positions that we may live quiet, peaceable lives in all godliness and dignity. The best you can hope for is that the king of this country doesn't come and crush you, that he allowed you to live with some sense of quietness and dignity. But you've got to get rid of any ideas that you're going to conquer the world. The conquering of the world comes when Jesus Christ returns. For now, he reigns in the hearts and lives of his believers as we endure pain and suffering and loss and hatred as we love those that persecute us. As we look in the eyes of those that would take our lives and say, I love you, I forgive you, receive the gospel and be saved today. That's the message. Very well. So I left a question unanswered last week. It was verse 10. You thought I skated by, right? You thought I was just hoping you would forget about it? No. So we come to this passage right in the middle of all this right in the middle of all the suffering, right in the middle of all the pain and the hatred and the persecution and the apathy and everything else that comes. And right in the middle of this, we read this in verse 10. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all the nations. Matthew 24, 14 records it. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. And for many of you, for many Christians, that's a sticking point right there. You say, okay, I believe that everything else that you said, it happened within the lifetime of the apostles. There's no doubt about that. It continues to happen today. But what about this? Are you literally telling me that within the lifetime of the apostles that this happened, that the gospel was proclaimed? Yes, we believe there was false Christs and there were wars and there was tribulation and famine and all this. But how can you claim that before the year 70 AD that the gospel had reached the end of the world? So look, I'll tell you that the answer to this is not all that technical. It's not all that tricky. Something within this discourse, perhaps some things within this discourse have to be taken as figures of speech. So people say, look, I hold to a literal translation of the Bible. What most people mean when they say that is, I believe the Bible really says what it means. I believe that the Bible is inerrant. I believe the Bible is a straightforward word of God. But with regards to this, they'll say, look, I I believe in a literal reading of God's word, and so I believe that if Jesus says the gospel must be preached to all the nations, he means literally the gospel must be preached to every single tongue and tribe and nation, and that that's what he's referring to right here. And that's fine. That's very good. If you hold to that, I won't try to dissuade you. But the problem is when we get to verse 30, and he says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Do we also take that literally? I I don't think that we can have both. And so then you may very well say, you can, you can rightly argue, yes, but there are times in scriptures where generation does not mean a literal generation. There's times in scripture where generation does not mean a literal 40-year generation, and you're correct. There's other passages of scripture where Jesus talks about this evil and adulterous generation. Could that not just mean the men that are standing there? Might that mean the sinful world that continues on from fall all the way until his return? Yes, possibly it could. But then my question to you is, Are there passages in Scripture where the ends of the world, where all the nations are used, and it does not literally mean the sum of every single nation? Because if so, my argument to you is that we do well to take verse 10 as a figure of speech, to take verse 30 as an absolute literal statement, because it allows for the most straightforward reading of what's in front of us. 
And that's what I believe our aim needs to be. How do we read and understand in as straight a forward fashion as possible what Jesus is saying and in a way that harmonizes as much as possible with all the rest of the gospel, with all the rest of scripture, that creates the least what ifs and problems for us. And I believe that this is it. If we can find some places in scripture where all the nations and all the world is not taken literally. So if we look at John chapter 12, after the triumphal entry, the Pharisees, they're exasperated, and they say this, John 12, 19, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The literal world has gone after Jesus? Of, of course not. They mean a ton of people. It's not that dissimilar to wherever I showed up to our church family picnic. I showed up and I looked and I said, look, the whole church is here. First Baptist Crosby's taken over the entire park. Now, neither of those were literal statements. But I wasn't lying, and they didn't lose their meaning. There were some of you that weren't there, so obviously the whole church wasn't there. There were some other families there that weren't with us, but everybody knew what I meant with regards to the gospel. Listen to the words of Paul, Romans 10, 17 through 18, as he quotes Psalm 9. He says, so faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Verse 18, but I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and the words to the ends of the world. So more than a decade before the fall of the temple in 70 AD, we've got Paul saying that the word of the gospel has reached the ends of the world. Now some people there, they will rightly recognize that the word that he uses is oikomen. Oikomen is the same word that uh, Jesus uses or that Matthew uses in recording Jesus' words in Matthew 24. It can also mean the inhabited world or the known world. So some people argue that what Jesus was talking about and what Paul is talking about here is that the gospel would reach the ends of the inhabited, the known world, namely the Roman Empire. Is that it? Maybe that's it. I, I don't know for sure. I'm just presenting to you perhaps some support for the fact that maybe we don't take that literally. Similarly, in the beginning of his letter to Colossians, still before the fall of Jerusalem, in his letter to the Colossians, Paul's giving thanks to the church, Colossians 1, 5 through 6. He talks about the word of truth the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. The fruit of the gospel, the, the, the gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world. Does that literally mean the entire globe? Does that literally mean in Canada there was people that were bearing fruit for the gospel? There are fruit-bearing uh, uh, Christians everywhere? No. But he's saying that indeed the gospel has reached the ends of the earth. That indeed the gospel has been extended, not just to the Jewish people, not just in Israel, but to the whole world to the nations, to the Gentiles. I think that's what he means. In addition to this, let's think about what Jesus said to his disciples before ascending to heaven. With the Great Commission, what does he say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Ethne is the word in Greek. It's the same word that Mark uses. It's the same word that we find in Revelation 20 where we are told that the devil is bound up for a thousand years so that he may no longer deceive the nations, the ethnos, any longer. Then standing there on the Mount of Olives, Jesus says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to where? The ends of the earth. So I believe what Jesus is saying here is with the binding of Satan, with my ascension to the right hand of my Father, with the sending of the Holy Spirit, with the persecution that's come upon all of you right in the middle of all of this as the world rejects you, as they hate you, as they beat you, as they slander you, in the middle of all this, my gospel thrives. My gospel reaches its appointed purpose. And then we watch through the books of, book of Acts as exactly this thing happens. As the gospel is proclaimed in Jerusalem. And it's expanded to the rest of Judea. And it goes on to, Juma, uh, to Samaria. They may not have wanted to do this. But the persecution, we see it as it's pushing them. And then beyond Samaria, beyond the borders of Israel, to the ends of the earth. 
to all the nations. Where do we find the end of the book of Acts? We find Paul in Rome. And what are the last words we find there in the book of Acts? We find that he is preaching the gospel with great boldness and it's not hindered in any way. That the gospel is in fact gone to the ends of the earth. The gospel has in fact gone to the nations, even at the close of the book of Acts. And so I think that this is exactly what he's saying. This gospel has been preached before the destruction of the temple in the year 70 AD, that the gospel has in fact been preached to the ends of the earth. Is there still work to be done? Of course. This doesn't diminish from our call. This doesn't diminish from our, take us away from our mission. The call is still upon us to reach every tongue and every tribe and every nation for the name of Jesus Christ. We still send missionaries out because they're still unreached people groups. But the point is that this thing that Jesus talks about in verse 10, it has happened. Within the lifetime of the apostles, it had happened. And it happened because Jesus is on his throne. You've got to see this. It's not that Jesus is upon his throne because people chose to believe in him. People came to believe in Jesus Christ because he reigns from his throne. It is he who brings people to faith. It's the fact that he reigns from his throne that gets this gospel to the people that desperately need to hear it. It's all because of Jesus reigning that this thing carries out. And what a gift from God this is, is he's making clear to the nations right before the destruction of the temple. He's making clear to the nations that you have a place here too. You people who were not a people. You people that were without hope and without God in all the earth. You people that were separated from Christ. They were alienated from Israel. You people that were complete strangers to the promises and the covenants of God. That there's a place for you here. That the nation of Israel does not have a monopoly on God. That you don't come to this place and this temple with these sacrifices through these priests any longer. You come to the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the King of the universe, and that in him there's access to all. What a gift of God that he would show this to the nations before the destruction of the temple. Do you see why that would have been necessary? Where else were they going to go then? The gospel wasn't coming to them. If they didn't know that there's access outside of coming to this nation called Israel, if they can come to Jesus Christ in spirit wherever they are, this is a gift from God. It is open to you now, to the nations, that the gospel is open, that with restraining, with the restricting of the devil. That's what we read about in Revelation 20. Listen, he still roams. He still persecutes. He still lies. He still kills. He still steals. He still harasses the people of God. And yet you must know that he is restricted in his ability to keep the rest of the world in utter darkness. When Jesus Christ crushed his head, no longer was that a thing. That we live in this millennium that's talked about in Revelation 20, this time right now, is the devil is restricted and we are free to take the gospels to the ends of the earth. And that this thing that Jesus talked about, this reaching of the nations, it happened before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And that by that same power, with the same restriction of the devil and the same Jesus Christ reigning on his throne, by that same power, we too go out to the nations. We too share this gospel. We too, we, we too press on and we don't need to freak out. We don't have to lose our minds. We don't have to wonder if we're not going to get this thing done. We trust that it's all in the hands of Jesus Christ. And then when we see all these horrendous things happening around us, we know it's not the end. We don't have to always be wondering, is this the end? We look at the task that's before us and we continue to press on. So many of you are gonna be completely completely contrary to what I've just said. You didn't hear a word that I just said. It didn't match up with what you've been told, or perhaps you know about the legitimate concerns. Listen, I, I'm not telling you that this thing just lays out perfectly before us. I told you I hold this very, very lightly, but I'm telling you that I feel very strongly that what Jesus is saying here is this thing has been done, that the things I'm talking about here have been done. And in the power of Jesus Christ, we can march forward with absolute assurance that it's going to be completed in the very end that the gospel will reach its appointed goal. So that catches us up now through this morning's text. And so obviously we're just gonna be able to dip our toe in the water of, of, of what Jesus is saying here. So 
he's now ready to answer that first and primary question. So he's now told the people all the things that do not mark the coming of the end of the temple. He's told them all the things that are just going to be happen, happening all throughout the ages, all the things that are just the ordinary, ordinary signs of the times. And now he's ready to tell them what they're going to see on the day that the uh, temple is destroyed. Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand. That's the answer. That's the sign. They had asked a question, when will the temple be destroyed? What sign will we have? And here's the answer, here's the sign. Now understand, if you're a premillennialist, if you, if you hold to some other view, you see all kinds of other signs in this, you see all, other, all kinds of other signals that other things are happening, I'm telling you, this is the thing, because this is the question that was asked, when will we know? Men asked, when is the temple gonna be destroyed? And the short answer is this, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be. Matthew records this, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place. So when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, standing in the holy place. This is a reference to the temple, right? I think most people agree to that. This is a reference to the temple. Now, if you read this text with a futurist view, if you read this text as a thing that didn't happen within the year 70 AD, obviously there's gotta be a temple built. There is no temple in Jerusalem today. So obviously, if you're looking forward and you're saying this is the thing that's got to happen sometime in the future, this signifies the return of Jesus Christ or something right before, in the, in perhaps a couple of years before the coming of Jesus Christ, then you're looking forward to the rebuilding of a temple. So again, if you hold this view, then what you likely believe is that with the return of the Jewish people to Israel in the year uh, 1948, that you believe that all the pieces were kind of set in place. We're told that the Jewish people, I don't know how true this is, but we're told that the Jewish people are constantly compiling the things that they need to rebuild the temple so they can put it together very quickly if they ever regain control of the Temple Mount. I'll tell you, you go to Jerusalem now, and they've got a giant gold menorah sitting out in the market square. It's, it's closed in plexiglass. It's big. It's taller than me. Giant gold menorah that's just, just waiting for them to regain the Temple Mount and to rebuild the temple. So if you hold to that view, you're constantly watching all the things that are happening in the Middle East, and you're, you're constantly wondering, is this going to be the thing that's going to mark the coming of the Antichrist, the rebuilding of the temple and the Antichrist revealing himself as he demands that he's worshipped in that place? You, you, you're very, very caught up in this. And so, as I told you last week, Israel may well build a temple. He may, they may well build a temple within our lifetime. And if that happens, there's going to be a whole lot of Christians that believe that Jesus Christ's return is no more than seven years from that date. They're going to begin the countdown. Now again, I'm not trying to dissuade you of that. That's what you believe and you hold to that, and that's, 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 that's good. I understand how you got there. I understand the verses that you used to, got, to get there, and, and, I, and I wish you well. This is not going to be a thing that separates us. This isn't a thing that hampers, our, that hampers our ability to worship together, and I really don't want to fight with you. If you want to come to my office and we can talk through this, we can do this. But if you want to come to my office and prove a point, I don't, I don't know how well that's going to go, okay? But my door's always open, though. Come yell at me if you want. I'm cool with that. But... As I made clear, I, I don't think that's the case, in part because that would seem to be in direct contradiction. It, it expressed odds with what Jesus is saying. Like if we can know that with the rebuilding of the temple that automatically, well, we don't know when he's coming back, but it's within these seven years. It's within these three and a half years. It's within this. So I don't think this matches up with what Jesus says where he says, I'll come like a thief in the night. No one knows the day or the hour. I'm going to come at a time when people are doing all the ordinary things they do. They're eating, they're drinking, they're giving their daughters away in marriage, they're being married. Now, I understand that you can say, well, you can know the general time, you can know the season perhaps without knowing the specific day, but I, I think that's playing games with what Jesus is saying here. In addition to that, Matthew says that the abomination of desolation will be found in the holy place. Now, now you can bet that if Israel ever rebuilds a temple, they will call those inner courts the holy place and the most holy place or the holy of holies. But dear friends, you must know that the glory of God is not going to descend upon that temple. 
But the blessed presence of God is not going to come into that place. That place will not be holy no matter how ceremonially clean they keep it. And I understand that's gonna be an offense to a lot of people to hear. But you've got to see how this is an absolute assault on the gospel. To rebuild a temple, to put up a veil, to separate the people from the supposed presence of God, to separate them into Jews and into Gentiles and women into men. It completely undoes everything that the gospel shows us. It takes us back to a separation between God and man that can only be, that, that can only be brought together in this one place, in this one way, through these one certain men, through this one lineage, through these one sacrifices, through these one ceremonies. Isn't that everything opposite of what the gospel teaches us? They say, you come to Jesus Christ, and in him there is no veil. He is the veil. His flesh was the veil. No longer do we need earthly priests. No longer do we need these outward ordinances and ceremonial cleansings. You've got to see how the rebuilding of a temple is exactly contrary to this. So could Jesus refer to some future earthly temple and the inner courts within that as the holy place simply to make clear what he's talking about? I suppose he could, but dear friends, I don't think that's right. More convincing than all of that to me, more compelling than all of that to me is the reference to the book of Daniel. You see, these words, they were spoken to Jewish men that knew their Old Testament. Jewish people knew their Old Testament better than we know any portion of scripture. Now, they may have missed the true spiritual meaning of what was written there, but they grew up in school, especially these men. They would have grown up knowing these words. They knew what it said. And so what we find is that the abomination of desolation is not a phrase that Jesus invented right here on the spot. That's why he says in Matthew that was spoken of by Daniel. He also says in both Matthew and Mark, let the reader understand. Now, we cannot read the Old Testament without looking back through the New. You can get in some really, really bad theology if you just try to take the Old Testament and read it in a vacuum. If you don't read the, the Old Covenant in view of its ultimate fulfillment, its spiritual fulfillment, all that comes to pass in Jesus Christ and in this new community that he's building with Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles coming together in him. But at the same time, you can't read the New Testament without reading it in light of the old. It's a little bit like walking up on a conversation that's been going on for 1,500 years and inserting yourself without first catching up, without first figuring out what the people are talking about. So we've got to read it in light of that. We've got to get our bearings. Okay, so looking at the time, we'll have to come back to the references to Daniel next week. But here's what I need you to know this morning. Here's what you need to know this morning. Whatever the abomination of desolation is, it's something that the first century Jewish reader was meant to understand. It was something that the men on that mountain were meant to understand. It's like a cultural reference. Like here in America, I asked Allie last night just to check if these things were still a thing anymore. I'm kind of old now. But America, there's certain things that Americans just get that the rest of the world wouldn't. We, we talk about the stars and stripes, and everybody knows what we're talking about. We talk about Lady Liberty, and we're talking about we say that things are as American as baseball and everybody under 40, none of y'all got it. Everybody over 40, you got it. We talk in this country about the stars and stripes and Lady Liberty and baseball and apple pie, and everybody knows what we're talking about, right? But not necessarily if you're living in Europe. Certainly not if you're around in the 15th century. But these are things that immediately make sense to us. They immediately conjure up in images to us. We immediately have some connection with these things. So it seems clear to me that this abomination of desolation is a very specific Jewish Old Testament imagery at its root. That Jesus was painting a picture for these men. It was something that they all should have understood. That they would immediately see it and immediately recognize what it is. That's why he says, let the reader understand. But do you ever notice, Jesus says here, or Mark perhaps puts in this, Mark and Matthew both, let the reader understand, and frankly, none of us understand for 2,000 years, we've been debating about what we're supposed to understand. But I'm telling you, I think the first century Jewish Christian, they heard this and they immediately understood. Now, this doesn't mean that it doesn't have relevance to us today. 
again, in God's timing, God willing, we'll talk next week what the relevance here is. But I'm telling you, this is something that was important. God wanted the first century Jewish Christians to know what was coming. The men in this moment, within their lifetimes, this thing was going to happen. This cataclysmic event, it was going to happen. They had to know how to respond to this. So because he needed the first century church to know, he tells them this thing's going to happen. Now again, with regards to his return, all he says is, stay ready. You don't know when that day's coming, so stay ready. It's going to be like a thief in the night. So he talks about in Matthew 25, like the virgins with their lamps and the oil. He's saying, you got to stay ready at all times because you don't know when I'm coming back. I'm not going to give you any warning. It's going to come like lightning. I'm coming. But that's not the case with the destruction of the temple. He's saying, you must see the sign so that you know how to respond. Now, when we get to Luke's gospel, which most people believe was probably written with a more Gentile audience in mind, we read this, Luke 21, 20. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. So people not as familiar with the Old Testament, not as familiar with Daniel, we may not know what the abomination of desolation is. We know what it means when armies surround the city. When you see the armies surrounding the city, when you see the armies coming in to the temple, you must know that its time is short, that its destruction is nigh. And so Jesus tells his people what to do then. He says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, it seems like an ordinary response, right? You see the Roman armies coming in, and you're going to head for the hills. You're going to get the heck out of Dodge. But that wasn't the case then because there was no protection in the mountains. In those days, in that place, whenever you saw an army closing in, your first reaction was to get to the biggest city with the biggest walls and close it up. That's why Nehemiah was so distraught when he found out that the wall around Jerusalem was in shambles. The people were left defenseless. But he's saying, you don't do this. Whenever you see this abomination of desolation, you get out of there. You run to the mountains. Verse 15, let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. Now, houses in the ancient uh, Near East, they they had flat roofs. People hung out up there a lot. Oftentimes, eating meals is a good place to catch a breeze. He's saying, when you see this thing happening, don't even go down to collect your things. Don't even run back down to collect anything. Now, oftentimes, those houses would have been connected. You could have got from the roof from one house to another. Many of these houses would have been connected to the wall. He's just saying, you got to scram. When you see this, you don't have time to collect your things. You don't have time for the photo albums. You get out, and you get out now, or you will die. Verse 16, and let the one who is in the field not return back to get his cloak. So men, they would have stripped down to their base layer whenever they're out doing work in the field. He's saying, you don't have time to go back and get the rest of your clothes. Are you getting the picture? Verse 17, and alas, for women who are pregnant, for those who are nursing infants in those days. So mothers and women with babies, they would have moved slowly. Babies can't run. You've got to carry them. Verse 18, pray that it might not happen in the winter. Winter is wet season in Jerusalem. Trying to get into the mountains on those roads would have been slippery and wet. and It was an absolute mess. So pray that you're not fleeing during the rainy season, during the rain. Matthew adds, pray that it does not happen on a Sabbath. Now, on a Sabbath, the gates would have been closed. On Sabbath, there would have been great restrictions with regards to how people could have helped you when you were trying to escape. Do you see this? These are all very practical things. These are all very practical things that would have had real application to the first century church. We don't go out and work half-clothed anymore. I don't hang out on the roof of my house. I can just take my baby and throw him in a car seat and jump in the car and go. There's no restrictions upon us with regards to the Sabbath and gates closing and our ability to buy or sell. Do you see this is very very practical applications that would have had real resonance with the men that were standing before him today, but they lose some meaning if we carry them forward to today. Luke says, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among the nations. The wrath of God is poured out through this Roman army. Verse 19. For in those days, there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. I see other evidence here that this isn't the end. Do you see it? He says, 
as has not been until now and never will be. It seems like he's pointing forward in the future. There's still going to be time after this, and that's not going to be as bad either. This is as bad as it's ever going to get. It's not going to get worse. But you might rightly say, well, okay, time out. Wait a minute. You're telling me that the destruction of Jerusalem, the siege, the destruction of the temple and the siege of Jerusalem, it was worse than World War II or something like 55 million people died? How can you say that that's worse? Well, firstly, we have to take again into account the kind of language, the teaching that Jesus uses, this prophetic, apocalyptic style. There's a pastor by the name of Kevin DeYoung that really helped my thoughts with regards to this. He points out to us that God uses very similar language with regards to the Exodus. Exodus 10, 14. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as has never been nor ever will be again. Exodus eleven six 6 with regards to the final plague. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been nor ever will be again. We see this all throughout the prophetic books. As a matter of fact, I believe it's Joel. Joel or Amos, one of the other prophets, they talk about a swarm of locusts that as such has never been and never will again be. Well, which one is it, God? Were the swarms in Egypt worse than they've ever been? Or the swarms that you're talking about through Joel or Amos, I can't remember which, worse than it's ever going to be? You see, this is prophetic language. This is the kind of language that God uses when he talks about cataclysmic events, earth-shattering events. And Jesus is borrowing this language when he talks about what's going to happen on this day. But beyond this, yes, this deal was really, really bad. Sure, only a million people died. Sure, only 100,000 were taken off into slavery, into captivity. Number one, it was almost everybody there. Number two, the horrors were truly unimaginable. We've talked at some length about that last week, but the fact that these giant boulders were thrown into the city, they were catapulted into the city, that there was just fires breaking out and starvation settling in. I told you last week that there was reports of some mothers that would kill and cook their children just so they would have something to eat, and then the smell of their cooking children would draw in other people that were hungry that would beat and attack the mother in order that they could consume their children. They're eating things that were not edible just to get something down within their bellies. The, the, the Jewish zealots, they were attacking their own people that even contemplated surrendering to the, to the Roman army that came. Some people that did seek to escape, that they did manage to get outside the wall and run, the Romans snatched them up. Josephus tells us that there were something like 500 crucifixions every single day. This is a really, really bad thing. I don't have time to unpack it all. Go read it. Flavius Josephus, his, his works are out there, probably for free somewhere on the internet, but for pretty cheap on Amazon somewhere. Just go read through this. This is a horrendous thing, unimaginable to those of us sitting in this room. Verse 20, and if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. So had God let this thing go on, nobody would have survived. Mercifully, he allowed the siege to end. He caused the siege to end at five months. It was for the sake of the elect. That's the words of Jesus, not Paul. For the sake of the elect, for the sake of those that have been chosen, for their sake, he shortened the days of this thing. He brought it to an end, verse 21. And then, if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders. History tells us of exactly these kind of things. These men popping up. Look, during times of turmoil, it's easy for false prophets. It's easy for false teachers. It's easy for them. Just look around you today. All these liars on TV, all these liars on the internet, they use all the craziness of this world to convince you of something, to convince you that they are somebody worth following. And those things, they would have happened. Matthew tells us that Jesus told him, look, my coming, it's gonna be like a flash of lightning. You're gonna know when it happens. Don't go after these false Christs. Don't get swept up by these men that act like Pharaoh's magicians doing these false miracles. It's not me. Don't believe them. So false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. To mislead, if possible, the elect. This does not indicate that it's possible. This shows their intent. 
their desire to lead possible, to, if possible, to lead astray the elect. But Jesus has promised all throughout his gospel that I will save my sheep, that I will hold fast to my sheep, that no one will snatch them from my hand, that you're safe and secure, the elect, those that God has chosen. Again, these are the words of Jesus. Those aren't my words. Those aren't Calvin's words. Those aren't even Paul's words. These are the words of Jesus talking about the elect, that the false prophets would lead even them astray if possible, but they will not be able to happen. This will not happen. This should be a great comfort to us, even in the trials of today, as we look around us and we wonder, if I've fallen off track somewhere, has God abandoned me somewhere along the way? If I crossed some invisible line I didn't know about with my sin and now God has chosen to release me back. Dear friends, if you're saved, if you're secure in the hands of Jesus Christ, he will not let you go. That's why we can keep our head. That's why we don't have to freak out. That's why we don't abandon the church when things get bad. That's why we cling to the church. That's why we come into this house of worship because we know that he's holding us safe and secure. That because we did not secure our own salvation, there's nothing we can do to let loose of it. And then there's nothing the world can do to drag us away from him. That's how Paul can say with such absolute assurance that nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. That's a promise that he can make because he doesn't let loose. Dear friend, I must know that you must know that if it were left up to me, I would have run away from Jesus Christ a long time ago. How many times have I tried to run from God? How many times have I tried to run my, to turn around and run my life off a cliff and he wouldn't let me? He holds fast to me. He says, no, you're mine and I don't lose. I'm making you precious. That's the promise. That's the hope. Verse 23, but be on guard. I've told you all these things beforehand. So Jesus told his disciples to be on guard, to be warned about these things. Now, there's his, historians that tell us, and you're not going to believe me when I tell you this, so you're going to have to go look it up for yourself. But there are Jewish historians, there are Roman historians, there are Christian historians. They tell us that virtually no Christians died in the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD because of the words of Jesus Christ that warned them, get out. When you see this thing happening, you pack up and you run and you don't look back. That by the word of God, under the influence of the spirit of God, he caused his people to carry on. He caused his people not to be destroyed. That this was God's purpose, that this was his plan. That with the destruction of the temple, he was making clear that Jesus Christ is on his throne. He was making clear that there's only one way to God and that is through his son, Jesus Christ. He was making clear that Jesus Christ reigns and we must bow our knee to him today. And then again I say, by the power of his word, he preserved his people, not just for their sake, but so that this gospel may go forth to the ends of the nations. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that we see in this story that unveils before us the truth of your word, that we see your sovereignty over all creation, that we see your providential plan in taking the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. We thank you for the promises we see there, for our security in you. Father, it is my desire that we wouldn't get wrapped up in the debates the arguments the disagreements about what Jesus is or is not saying here that more than that we would just see his beauty we would see his power we would see his promises and that we would be changed that we would rightly worship and glorify him right here in this moment whether my brothers and sisters in this room believe that Jesus is talking about a thing yet to come or looking forward to a thing that, that looking backwards to a thing that has happened or looking forward to a thing that's yet to come there is one thing that is indisputable and that is that Jesus Christ reigns today and that he is coming back for his bride. So in light of that, we seek to worship him now. May he be glorified by not only the words of our lips, but the meditations of our heart. For it's in the precious name of your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.